the issues certainly multiply and, and arguably exponentially with the number of shareholders that you have in a small company because not only have you got tax issues that flow with value shifting and, and tax issues that flow with what are the rights attaching to these other classes of shares, but you've also got control interests. What control interests do these other people have? And if you're issuing shares to one shareholder and preferring that shareholder to other shareholders, what rights do the other shareholders have? You are listening to Australia's podcast for accountants, Tax Talks, the podcast to run and grow your firm. Welcome to episode 272 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson and thank you to Klaas for sponsoring this episode. Let's talk about the capital of companies. Does size matter? Does it matter whether capital is paid in or not? And who is responsible for substantiating the claim of capital profits reserves and capital losses carry forward? These are just some of the questions Jeff Steen of Brownwright Steen Lawyers in Sydney will discuss with you. I'm wrong, but my understanding is for small to medium companies, the size of capital doesn't really matter. It doesn't matter whether it's $1, $10, $100 or $1,000. No supplier or creditor will look at the size of the capital. Is that right? As a practical matter, that is right. But more sophisticated customers in particular, and some, some suppliers, will look at balance sheets now. So particularly if the enterprise is involved in tendering for government jobs or tendering for large contractors where you've got a procurement division, they will want to know that the entity is substantial. The, the issued capital is probably less important than the retained earnings, but it's the combination of what is the equity that's in that enterprise. And they probably look a lot more at accounts payable. If the accounts payable are huge, then this company is probably not a good payer. If if the accounts receivable are huge, they might have problems with their cash flow. They probably look more at that and of course at the bank balance than at the size of the capital. Yeah, the size of the capital in itself is not a material, it's not a material matter for people dealing with a company other than the question, what is the net equity in that company? Because that's essentially the share capital is only one function of working out what is net equity. And then, of course, we both know that there are some ex exceptions to this general statement. And the only one I know is the um, home building compensation fund. So when you are a building company and you want to register as a builder to be authorized to perform residential work worth more than $20,000, you need to be part of the home building compensation fund. And to enter this fund, you need to have a certain size of capital, which ICARE will tell you. I mean, ICARE mm. in New South Wales and the other states, of course, it's a different government body, but you will be told what your capital should be. But that's the only exception I am aware of where the size of the capital matters. Are you aware of any other ones? I'm not sure whether what I'm about to tell you is current, but at one stage, there were certain companies, certain AFSL conditions that required the license holder to have a particular issued capital. And if I go back years, there were um, travel industry enterprises where there was an insurance obligation. They were required to have a minimum capital to meet the travel compensation fund minimum re requirements. 
And actually, I can imagine that managed fund schemes, I have a deja vu that I think managed fund schemes might also have certain capital requirements or funding requirements. Well, certainly I think the trustee companies do, yes. Yes, exactly. Good. Okay, so there are some exceptions to the general rule, but usually capital is one of the lesser important factors of the balance sheet. Yeah, Just quickly following up on this home building compensation fund that I just mentioned, if you set up such a home building company and if you then, for example, are told to inject $100,000 into the company and you sign a board resolution, and by the way, when it says board resolution, that always means board of directors, correct? Yes, it means board of directors. But there are coming into place, and this is not the topic for discussion today, but there are coming into place a lot more advisory boards. One of the things that's been tossed around probably for the last 10 or 20 years in Australia is the idea that you have a, you can have two levels of boards. So you can have your governance board and your executive board, or you can, you know, so your governance board is essentially a supervisory board, or you can have a governance board for compliance purposes, and then you can have an advisory board, which essentially provides mentoring. But the context we're talking about today, yeah, board means board of directors. To participate in this home building compensation fund, you need to inject a certain amount of capital into the company. And then you need to have a board minutes or board resolution that you make this capital injection and that, that you will retain the capital in the business and not loan any part out and that you use the capital for productive business use only. So that's the board resolution that you need to make and give to iCare. But then after that, if you then didn't comply with this and took the 100,000 back out because, for example, a relative loaned you the 100,000 to pass the, the goalpost, if you then did that afterwards, if you took it out again, you would have a Division 7A problem, you would have a problem with iCare and the Home Building Compensation Fund, but you wouldn't have a problem under the Corporations Act, correct? Nearly correct. I think if you said, without doing anything else, that you've put $100,000 in and then contrary to the conditions upon which it was contributed as capital, you then decided, well, I'm going to lend it out to shareholders. I don't think at that point in time you have a Division 7A problem because you don't have a distributable surplus. You You may, if the proposed reforms come in, you may have a Division 7A problem because they're supposed to abolish one of the reforms is to abolish that concept of distributable surplus, but I don't think I don't think you'll have a Division Seven A problem as it stands. You certainly don't have a Corporations Act problem, leaving aside the idea that there may be some type of conflict of interest or a breach of fiduciary duty, depending upon who the money has been advanced to. So, whenever you're lending money as a director of a company and you're causing the company to lend money to yourself or to one of your associates. You've got to think through, is there going to be a fiduciary duty and can I get into trouble if I do that? But apart from that, yeah, the, you, you may be in breach of the conditions. It may mean that you lose your licence for the building trade or for whatever it is that you've required to inject the capital in the first place. But, yeah, you won't have a corporations that problem in itself. And what's the um, responsibility of the um, accountant or the tax agent who then prepares the financial statements, et cetera, and sees that contrary to the board resolution, the money has left the company again for other reasons than productive use? What's the responsibility of the accountant or tax agent in that case? That's a really good question, Heidi, because 
number one, it's going to depend on scope. So if you've got an agent, tax agent or a finan- somebody that's providing financial advice as an accountant who has a broad scope of engagement, so it's a general advisor instead of simply being specifically an engagement which is quite narrow, which is please prepare my tax uh, return. But if you're broadly providing advice, then you probably have a duty of some sort to bring that to the attention of the directors at a minimum. But you only have a responsibility to bring it to the attention of the directors. But of course, the directors know that know this perfectly well. They are the ones who took the money out. But you only have a responsibility towards the directors, not towards care or anybody else. Correct. If you're doing going one step further and you're an auditor, then you are going to have other provisions which may may have a a report to a regulator. But usually building companies, you know, small to medium building companies are not audited. So Correct. it usually doesn't come up. So that basically means that this requirement of a capital injection for home building companies is kind of shoots into the void, I think, because there's nobody afterwards obliged to tell anybody that the money is gone. No, there's nobody afterwards. But And the question is, how often is the insurer or ICARE going to call for the financial statements. And if you're preparing financial statements on behalf of a client, because that's part of your engagement, do the financial statements disclose what's going on or do they hide what's going on? And if they hide what's going on and it's arguably fraudulent if the accounts are being presented to a regulator that's inconsistent with the true financial position, then you know, if there is anybody that's going to be in the hook, your accountant that's prepared those financial statements will be in the hook with the directors. Yes, of course. Yes. Okay. So the question is, will ICARE ever ask for financial statements in subsequent years? And if they do, which I actually don't know, but if they do, then yes, that there would be an oversight. There would be supervision. But if if they don't ask for this, then of course, it's a little bit of a dubious measure. Yeah, too. And, and also, Heidi, don't forget that if, if you're in the building game, then quite often you'll be maybe a retail builder, in which case what I'm about to say doesn't apply. But if your building works subcontract building so that you're providing building works uh, to a, a master builder of some sort or you're providing building works uh, for government tendering, typically you're going to have to provide your financial statements to the counterparty and someone's going to be looking over them. Very good point, yeah. Does this requirement of a capital injection, doesn't that then also make the director or the shareholders personally liable? So if the company has a capital of $100,000, which was meant to be paid in, but now it's paid out again, then the company would have a claim against whoever received that money and hence the creditors, including the Home Building Compensation Fund, could go after this claim, correct? So it yeah, creates a personal liability. In the circumstances, in the example that you've given, we've got two potential claim points. So number one is the company has lent the money out. So the borrower of that money will continue to owe the money back to the company. And the second potential point was the one that I've alluded to a moment ago, that if the directors have lent that money and it's a breach of their fiduciary duty in doing so, then they could be personally liable as well. Hmm. But they're not going to be liable as a shareholder. The liability as a shareholder will only arise if they're, and I think this is one of the other things that we talked about before, before we started uh, the the podcast, but 
if you've got a position where a shareholder has promised to fund but doesn't make good on that promise, then the shareholder might be liable for the amount of the promised funding. Yes. So this leads now to paid and unpaid capital, correct? Exactly. Yeah. So any unpaid capital, the shareholder is liable. So if the company ever hit rough waters and, for example, a liquidator came in, then the liquidator could make the shareholder liable for this outstanding capital, correct? Correct. And you usually can find that from a company search because, just to give an example, let's say that for some reason the company has issued shares with an issue price of $1 but only accepted one cent uh, on issue of the shares. So that would mean that the shareholder owes the other 99 cents. Yes. It's a debt that the company can call upon. And those shares would either, you know, in some circumstances, the company constitutions will give the company a right to forfeit the shares if the issue price is not paid in full when the company calls upon the shareholder to do so. In other circumstances, the, the shares may not be able to be forfeited and it remains a debt due and payable. Yes. And of course, all this only matters if the capital is, is of a reasonable size. You know, when the share capital is $10, then of course, nobody will nobody will Nobody cares. Bother why way. would you bother yes. doing partly paid shares for an issued capital of $10? Yes. You're wasting everybody's time. Yes, yes, I agree. Okay. Next question. And sorry, I'm jumping around a little bit. What can you do with paid in capital? Once the money is paid into the company, I assume the directors and management can do with the money as they see fit. It's then after that, it's in their hands to sail the ship. Yeah, that's right. It's obviously that as they see fit means in compliance with the law or without breaching the law, but directors are charged with the responsibility to manage the company and the courts generally won't interfere with their business judgment as to how they spend the money. Uh, so as long as they comply with the basic duties not to trade while insolvent, you know, what they decide to do with their capital in a company is a matter for the directors. Next question. How do you increase the capital of a private company? How complicated or straightforward is it? In its most simple terms, it's simply a matter of saying, I apply to subscribe for additional shares on the terms of the constitution or even on replaceable rules. I simply fill out one piece of paper that says, please issue me shares. I have a company minute that says, I am now issuing you these shares. And then I lodge an ASIC form to say the shares have been issued. Yes. From a tax perspective, all you've got to worry about is that there's no value shift. That is, the shares have been issued for an amount equivalent to the current value of those shares. And so when we're talking of a small to medium company, so do we then usually need to get a valuation of the company or are we usually safe to just assume that it's $1 per share or similar? De minimis threshold for value shifting is $150,000. So as long as the um, shares are being issued and the total value of the, the shares that are being issued that people are comfortable is less than $150,000, then getting a formal valuation is not necessary. If we have a company and the new shares are not worth more than 150,000, and if this company has only one director, has only one shareholder, and this shareholder now wants to increase just the same class of shares to himself, then all of this is straightforward. You just need a member resolution, I assume, 
and then you have you have your capital increased and then you basically just need to transfer the money if it's paid in capital. That's right. And, and, and you don't need to worry about value shifting if you've got a single shareholder and that's the shareholder that's buying in. Oh, I see. So if you just have a single shareholder, then it doesn't even matter what the value of the shares is. Yeah. But the, the one thing that's probably relevant from a tax perspective is being careful about your 12-month rule. And, and this used to be even more important when you had pre-CGT and post-CGT shares, which were you know, in, in, when, in 1985 when this was first introduced. But, but nowadays, it's just being careful about your 12 months because don't forget those shares will typically carry pro rata rights. And if you have issued new shares, then if you sell those shares as a whole parcel within 12 months, only a fraction of the shares will attract the, uh, 50% the 12% CGT. CGT discount. So that's yeah. one other thing to be careful about. Okay, good. So straightforward, if you just have one shareholder and you issue the same class of shares, but yeah. it probably gets more complicated if you have more than one shareholder or if you introduce and slash or you introduce a new class of shares. Yes. And then is it still straightforward if you continue to just have one shareholder, but you issue another class of shares or is already the new class of shares making it a lot more complicated? A little bit of complexity, again, tax complexity only if you are introducing another class of shares. But while you own all of the interests, it shouldn't matter. And, and, and again, I question why would you worry about it if you've got a single shareholder? Yes, good point. And the uh, tax issue is just that when you have different classes of shares, you need to apply the dividend benchmarking rule to each of those classes. Is that the uh, tax issue you need to consider? Yeah, you also need to consider when you have shares that have discretionary entitlements to dividends, there are some rules which say, well, if, if the, these shares are, can be essentially self-defeated by the exercise of that discretion, then some of the flow-through rules to work out control may change. And so you've just got to be careful about that depending on which rule you're applying. So, you know, for example, some of the loss carry-forward rules, some of the small business concessions, you've got to be careful about making sure that you're tracing through appropriately. And again, I, I just question the wisdom. If you've got a single shareholder, why is it necessary to have different classes of shares? Yes. You've got complete control. But so now we come to several shareholders. So what happens if we have several shareholders? I assume now it gets a lot more complicated and you need watertight paperwork or is it not as dramatic as I make it sound? The issues certainly multiply and, and arguably exponentially with the number of shareholders that you have in a small company. because not only have you got tax issues that flow with value shifting and, and tax issues that flow with what are the rights attaching to these other classes of shares, but you've also got control interests. What control interests do these other people have? And if you're issuing shares to one shareholder and preferring that shareholder to other shareholders, what rights do the other shareholders have? Sometimes you see, for example, that you've got a partnership which is being converted into a, a company and that partnership comprises an active partner and a funding partner. And the tension between those two interests can create a, a difficult dynamic if it's not managed properly. So it's quite common for people in that position or people in position where there are multiple families investing in an enterprise to have some type of agreement that governs that relationship between them. Again, the more money that's involved, the more care that should be taken to make sure that everybody understands this is the basis upon which we're working together. Very good point. I'm already coming to 
my kind of last question. And <laughs> it, it jumps a little bit away from capital as such, but it goes to the capital profits reserve. And correct me if I'm wrong, the uh, capital profits reserve consists of the capital gains the company derived from pre-CGT assets and any small business CGT concessions the company might have claimed. Am I right? Lucy, yes. There's, there's no reason why you can't have capital profits reserves for other things, but they're, they're the typical reasons why you would use them in the current environment. And it's even more important that they are properly labelled as such so that mm -hmm. you wouldn't be wise to have a capital profits reserve that has a mix of pre-CGT and small business concessions in it. You need to make sure that your pre-CGT capital profits are clearly identified as such and can come out when a liquidator makes a distribution at the end of the day. The function of the capital profits reserve is just that when the company is liquidated at the end, those amounts then come out of the company as capital and not as a dividend. And they come out of the capital. Do they still attract capital gains tax then with, with the relevant concessions? Or do they come out completely tax-free since they were pre-CGT or since they were small business CGT? Uh, that's a good question, Heidi, because you've got two levels that you've got to consider. So firstly, you're considering the company level and then you've got to consider the shareholder level. So from a company level, the amount is a liquidator's distribution and is not deemed to be a dividend. But it is still capital proceeds that are paid to a shareholder upon cancellation of the share. So when you look then at the shareholder perspective, it's possible that a shareholder, for example, may have inherited the shares from a parent. So you could be dealing with a pre-capital gains tax profit in the company, but that the shares have a value which was a cost base carried forward, which was equivalent to the value of those shares at the date of death of the parent from whom the shareholder inherited the shares. And so when the capital proceeds are paid out, that shareholder will have a capital gain on the cancellation of the shares, calculate that gain by reference to the, the cost base value. That, just said. that means you would, even though it's pre-CGT, you would still possibly pay some tax on this capital. Yeah, so that's right. It's pre-CGT in the company, but the shares are post-CGT in my example. So yeah. when, the, when the, the amount's paid for the shares, then that's when the piper has to be paid. Yes. And it's the same with small business CGT concessions. The company might receive generous small business CGT concessions, but when they are then paid out, the cost base of the shares, let's say is zero because the, um, or $10 or whatever the capital was 50 years ago. Or so when they set up the company, the cost base is basically nil. So they're facing a massive capital gain, even though they had all the small business CGT concessions within the company. Potentially, yes. The, the small business CGT concessions is a fascinating area as to how it comes out on a wind-up because don't forget if it's within the 15-year rule then there's an express provision that says when it comes out no, no tax is payable the 50% reduction there's no similar express rule that's that's expressed to be a reduction of the amount of assessable income so you could have a reserve in the company and then when it's paid out in theory that would be subject to tax in the way we've just described But in practice, there is a ruling, the number of which it escapes me, where the tax office says that they will disregard the amount 
of the 50% reduction that's been saved as being an accessible item on, on redemption. And then on the other side, you've still got the possibility that the shares themselves may be active CGT assets. And so that you could end up with a position where the shareholder could be claiming the small business concessions in respect of the cancellation of the shares themselves. So any capital gain that comes from a 15-year exemption or comes from the 50% CGT uh, discount, which they don't call 50% CGT discount, they call it something else. I think it's the 50% asset reduction discount or something around that. The capital gains that end up in the capital profits reserve from those two concessions can make it out of the company CGT free. The other ones would go through the normal recycling of capital gains. So you you would be up for capital gains tax for the difference between the capital distribution and the cost base. However, you might then still be able to claim the small business CGT concessions again if the shares are still active assets. And they possibly would be active assets if you had them for more than seven and a half years and they would always be active assets. Yeah, I think you've you've just got to go through the rules at the time that you're attempting to say the CGT event has happened. Very good. And now a really crucial question, and that is, (laughs) let's say you, and I think this happens a lot, you receive a new client, you get the balance sheet, you start your work, the balance sheet has a massive capital profits reserve in it, let's say a million. And of course, you have no idea where that capital profits reserve comes from. Who is responsible for the details where this capital profits reserve come from when the company is liquidated? Because that might be 20, 30 years after that amount was booked. Does the ATO ask for a breakup of this capital profits reserve? Do they go back digging in it? Or, or is it enough that it just was rolled forward over the years and then that's good enough? It's like everything else. that It only becomes relevant when the ATO want to investigate what's happened. So mm-hmm. there's no automatic supervision of it. Obviously, a liquidator in the course of liquidation needs a tax office clearance. But normally that clearance is perfunctory and it's just a check as to what what has actually happened. I've had a couple of matters where after that clearance has been given, the ATO has realised that there's something else going on with the company and they want to put a hold on the liquidation until they can sort something else out. But generally speaking, nobody's going to look at it unless they're looking at the entirety of the arrangements or affairs of that particular taxpayer. Good. So in general, it's okay to just take those amounts and roll them forward and not go digging back to what exactly happened and when did what amount come into the capital profits reserve. But if the ATO did start digging, then who is responsible for the explanation of the components of the capital profits reserve? Is it the last accountant who is left holding the baby or is it each accountant who lodged the relevant increase of capital profits reserve? Well, I think you start with um, who's going to be liable against the tax office, and that's going to be the shareholder, because the shareholder is going to be lodging a return that says, in essence, that I'm not claiming a ta- that this is a taxable amount for what I've just received, um, because I think it's pre-CGT or a distribution of a pre-CGT reserve out of a company. And then from there, you go back to the liquidator and the liquidator says, yes, I've made that distribution and I was satisfied myself that that was how the books and accounts had been kept. 
And then you go back further and say, well, who was it that has lodged the accounts and made those changes and have it, has it all been done consistently and properly? So at the end, anybody that's in that chain could be liable theoretically for something that's gone wrong if it hasn't been done properly. But as a practical matter, you, know, you start with, does the person who has filed the return, has the shareholder got enough evidence to support the fact that it's a pre-CGT reserve distribution? Okay, good. So that's relatively good news. It means that when you have a new client with capital profits reserves, you don't have to go digging 5, 10, 15 years back to understand how this reserve came about. You can just take it at face value as long as it looks reasonable. You just run with it. I think that's right. As long as there's nothing there that's obviously wrong when you pick it up, I think you're entitled to assume that the accounts have been prepared previously correctly. Don't forget, your, your scope if you're picking up a new client is not, unless it's to review the work that a previous client has done, you're entitled to assume that's what's being presented to you is, in fact, the books and accounts of the company. The directors have the responsibility for making out those financial statements, not the accountant. The accountant simply acts uh, within the scope of the engagement that the accountant has with the client. Yes. And the same then probably also applies to any losses carry forward when you pick up a new client and there are substantial losses listed in the previous year tax return. You don't have to go digging back, understanding where the capital yeah. losses for example, came from. You can just take it at face value. Yeah, that's probably not as clear cut. Um, oh, really? Because don't forget, well, don't forget that when you are taking it forward that here you, you're claiming a deduction. So you've got to be satisfied that you can substantiate that deduction. Okay. So that so a capital loss carry forward would require more questions than a capital profit reserve. I think that's right. Okay. I, that was not the answer I hoped for, but yes, I, it makes sense. It makes sense. Of course, it's like with any, with any loss carry forward. The ATO doesn't really ask any questions why you incur the losses. They only start asking the questions when you start claiming the losses. Exactly. Share premium reserve. When you pick up a new client and the balance sheet shows a substantial share premium reserve, do you have to go back digging about that or you can just take that as face value? You can just take that. On one hand, you can take it as face value. But if I was picking up a client and said there's a share premium reserve in the financial statements, I would want to ask the question why, because typically it would mean that there's some other transaction that has happened that you need to keep in the back of your mind if you're going to do a restructure. Okay. So the share premium reserve would warrant some questions to better understand why, because it's actually not typical that a small to medium company would have a substantial share premium reserve. You wouldn't use a share premium reserve, I think, since 1990. So the, the fact that the company is quite old, stemming from the 70s or 80s, that goes hand in hand with having a large share premium reserve. So was it quite common before 1990? I can't remember which exactly which year. Yeah, was the- common then to have a high share premium reserve? It was more common. And one of the reasons why you would have them, and I think it was 95 actually, when when the relevant changes came in, when par values were abolished. So what used to happen was that you would issue a share that had a par value of a dollar and a share premium of, let's say, $5 because you wanted to have an issue price of $6. 
nowadays, when, when par values have been abolished, you just issue the share for $6. Okay. What was this par value about? It, it so rings par, a bell. I've heard it, but I, it just doesn't, yeah, just well, can't put you, a finger you, on it. If you went back years and years and you, you pull out an old Sydney Morning Herald, for example, or Financial Review, and you read through the stock exchange uh, pages, each company had a list as to, and, and would have in brackets afterwards, uh, a dollar amount. So for example, BHP, I think was $2 and you know, Woolworths may have been 10 cents, but essentially it was the issue price, the par value at which shares are deemed to have been issued. And that would be carried forward. And so whenever you pick up an old company constitution or, or memorandum and articles of association, it'll say the authorised capital of this company is, let's say, $3 million divided into shares of $1 each. And so you had this concept of the par value was a dollar for a share. And then, of course, if, if you're buying in, the shares may not be worth a dollar at the time that you're subscribing for new shares. That is, that there's a new issue out of that authorised capital because the authorised capital meant you're allowed to issue so many shares, but you may have only issued a fraction of the amount that you were authorised to issue. And so you could have a position where you're issuing additional shares, but the shares are no longer worth their par value, they're worth significantly more. And in those circumstances, what would happen is that you would issue the share, you would allocate some part of that share issue price to the par value, the, the, the normal issued capital, and then the balance would go to your share premium account. And then there were various things that you could do with your share premium account, and, and my memory is not good enough to tell you what some of those things were. And it's only a history lesson anyway, because you typically you won't find them anymore. But what's probably even more interesting, you've just got to be careful about when they're there, because if you're doing a restructure, you may be interfering with something that's being done for a particular reason to deal with that share premium reserve. Would it make sense to move the share premium reserve to paid up capital, especially when you have a certain capital requirement? It should be acknowledged as being within paid up capital. It's just paid up capital anyway. It is, that's what it is, yeah. Is there anything else I should have asked about uh, capital? There are many things you could have asked, but there are not many other things you should have asked. <laughs> <laughs> Good. I'm glad. Is there anything you would like to add? One of the things that's probably worthwhile adding is when you are thinking about putting capital into a company, you can put capital in as shareholding, you know, to, as share capital. You can put capital in as debt capital as well. And it's about how you manage that debt capital depending on what you're trying to achieve. So when it's debt capital, you can participate as a creditor in the wind-up and typically debt capital by shareholders, particularly in circumstances where you're dealing with companies, you, you might be required to subordinate that debt. So that essentially says, for my debt, I will rank above shareholders but behind other creditors. And so it, you know, there are some other... Um, techniques that you can use to achieve particular outcomes, particularly for shareholders, to try and improve their position in some way. But that's probably my final message. It's um, and and then again, also when you've you've got multiple families, it's it's always sensible to make sure that everybody understands this is the base upon which you're contributing, and what happens if somebody fails to contribute their share of the capital. Welcome back. So it all depends on the number of shareholders, how many classes of shares you have and the existence of capital reserves and share premiums. If 
you only have one shareholder and one class of shares and no capital reserves and no share premiums, then capital will be very straightforward. In the next episode, episode 273, Angelic Fass of Class will talk about trust reporting. Until then, thank you for listening and thank you to Class for their support. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. Mm-hmm.